Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. I will also order our government to deny entry to all communists and Marxists. Look, we have Marxists, fascists, communists, they're pouring into our country. We are going to deny them access to our country. Now, the one problem is, what about all the ones we already have that happen to be politicians, okay? Nancy Pelosi, Schumer, Schiff, Schiff, how about Schiff? Shifty, Shifty Schiff. Liar. What a liar. So, wow. Mike Murphy, yeah, there you go. I, You know how I read this? This was a bald-faced attempt on Donald Trump to get you on board because nobody talks more about communists and Marxists <laughs> than you. Well, and it's I true. This, he's just pandering to you to try and get you back on board. I, I felt the magnetic pull, but if he, <laughs> if he, he's got to be careful because if he goes crazy on the fascist thing, he's going to have to put the cuffs on himself. You know, day one. <laughs> Wait a minute, I didn't read that law, and he's got to get the markets too. The markets are the real problem. The other thing is, I, th- we have one legal problem. Quickly, we What's have that? to put a disclaimer on that because we just made an in kind to Adam Schiff for U.S. Senate. No Trump kidding. Is you know helping what? him guy, in the primary in California. Did you see his? Filing. Yes. Yeah. They have a money machine. It's unbelievable. And that money machine is basically being run Trump. by by Kevin McCarthy when they censured Schiff. The 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 uh, online donations went nuts. I think he probably will ask to get censured again next quarter. Yeah. No. Hit me again. <laughs> I could use another eighteen million. The, the one thing, and, and we shouldn't go too far. That that laughter you hear in the background is none other than the distinguished Heidi Heitkamp, former senator from North Dakota currently the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, which is even more important than being a senator. Uh, Heidi, good to, and also a, we should say a commentator for ABC News, for uh, uh, CNBC as well, right? Man, you are like, she's an industry, Murphy. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the other thing about that, uh, one last thing about it was, my six-year-old grandson heard uh, heard me listening to it, and he became very alarmed because he heard the first uh, the first go round where Trump seemed to be saying he was going to ban markers from from the U.S. That's and my right. six-year-old was like, "What? No markers?" He was just alarmed by the whole thing. But here we are, you guys. We're six weeks, uh, six months, I should say, from the Iowa caucuses. We're turning that uh, corner. And uh, Murphy, despite all of your prognostications, uh, this guy is still in the lead. And though I see your tweets and you say he's fading, I don't see the I don't see the evidence of the fade. I've got a whole team of zoologists searching the world for the only <laughs> uh, in Eastern Europe. There were some illegal experiments, and I might have found one—a three hundred pound crow for you to eat when Trump loses the Iowa caucus. But we have to wait. Here, here's Can what I tell you, my friend. I will I will eat it happily. Okay, okay. You're gonna need a hell of a happily. fork, but. I, I everybody. I'm, this, mine is a contrarian opinion. It's down to me and Rove who believe this, and I'm talking out of school. Yeah. Well, but, my question is, who do you think's going to beat him? Well, that's what I don't know. I know the get rid of Trump <laughs> is bigger than Trump, uh, or move beyond Trump. It's not everybody. Said, everybody wants the Sorkin movie, particularly Democrats. Go attack him. Be like Christie. Uh, uh, uh. They they want to take the car keys away from Grandpa. 
And so it, it's not about a direct attack. And we're going to talk about a spot. But let me just quickly say, I hear this all the time. I, I sent some of our time travelers in the Hacks on Tap time machine back to the 2016 race, which is the last time it was really open. And at this time in the esteemed Iowa Register poll, this early, a young David Axelrod was saying, the polling is clear in Iowa. It's Scott Walker. He's ahead by seven, followed by Rand Paul, followed I by Ben Carson. That. No, you didn't say that. I'm smearing you. But but the but the point is- Well, at least you call me young. It's too early in the Iowa caucus to know. The only thing we know is that the, the, the forces to move beyond Trump, and we ought to talk about the ad next- are growing. And I'll either be right or wrong. I'm out on a limb. That's the kind of courage you get here. But I'm predicting he loses the caucus. That is a courageous bet that you'll either be right or wrong. I think you're right <laughs> yeah. about that. You're <laughs> either going to be right or wrong. <laughs> That's a daring prediction. You can go David. to the bank on that crowd. That's true. You <laughs> conventional wisdom high gurus are all going to be sad. But anyway, let's see. Let's do the ad. Before we, before we, get, before we get to the ad, because I think it's a it really is it really is an interesting ad and one that bears discussion i want to talk you know the guy who is betting everything on iowa is desantis i think he knows that if he doesn't have a breakthrough there uh he he is he is in, in trouble and he is you know his super pack is is uh running a huge field program there i don't know how that's going to work uh he's run into all kinds of turbulence because he's not exactly mr personality uh and he's not but you know, the the Times wrote a story the other day, and it's sort of blown up about his courtship of Kim Reynolds, the very, very yeah. popular governor there. Because it seems to me that actually, that's an interesting play for him. Well, I, if, if I could just say this, coming from a state whose governor is popular, who would not, who would get beaten Next by- Next president, Trump. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's running for president, and he's a popular governor. But if he ran against Donald Trump in North Dakota, he'd lose by 30 points. If Kim Reynolds ran against Donald Trump in Iowa, she'd probably lose by at least 15 points. So, yeah, you can have the governor, you know, kind of palling around and legitimizing, uh, you know, Kim Reynolds. But the bottom line is that Donald Trump only needs a plurality and he is still king of the mountain. And I don't see that eroding. When you start seeing, you know, kind of mainstream Republicans take him on, then you know that his his star is waning, but I don't see it yet. All right. Well, more keep jumping in, but go ahead. You work for a governor who was governor for like I think 125 years there, Terry Branstad, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so, what do you think? What do you think that's worth? The Reynolds, the Reynolds rap. First of all. Immediately, you know, after DeSantis, who's doing better than Iowa, the national media has written him off as a caveman idiot. Uh, he's selling more tickets on the ground than that. He he is doing okay because he gives them culture war light, uh, and there's a market for it. And he's not old and crazy, and they don't all think he's going to lose to Biden like Republicans think about Trump. Kim Reynolds is a is a low key publicly, but a strong operator. And I my I a text immediately went off from her staff when Trump went off to me when Trump went off on her. And like, you know, she's a lot more Brian Kemp than he thinks. So we will see. Does she I've never seen an endorsement dictate anything uh in, in presidential yeah. primaries. But it is not 
is not unhelpful to him. I think Casey DeSantis has been his secret weapon. And I think what that tells me is the the savvy voter-connected governor of Iowa does not want to see Trump as the nominee and is trying to pick which non-Trump choice will break through late in Iowa, which is going to be the whole race. So she's a great symbol. Will it be DeSantis? Will it be Scott? Will she stay neutral? You know, I'll tell you in December when something happens. Uh, But it, um, I, I think DeSantis, for all his flaws, is a little underrated by sneering media conventional wisdom right now. Yeah, count me as a doubter. I mean, I've been a doubter from the beginning because I think that, uh, A, I'm not sure that being a Trump imitator is, you know, being Trumpier than Trump is. The problem for DeSantis is he's a politician and to the, his supporters, Trump is not. I mean, DeSantis just looks like an ambitious politician and Trump looks, you know, his supporters don't think of him as a politician. And, uh, you know, and I don't think anything that's happened is changing that. So but to your point, Heidi, about uh, about when uh, when sort of center right Republicans start fleeing Trump and taking him on, you'll know something changed. Your your guy, Doug Burgum, your your governor uh had an interesting interview over the weekend and let's play a little clip of that would you ever do business with donald trump uh i don't think so why i would i just think that it's important that you're uh, judged by the company you keep and i you just wouldn't do business with him no i wouldn't so you judge by the company you keep but he also says that if trump is the nominee he'll he'll endorse him for president so he wouldn't do business with him but he would vote for him for president of the united states he wouldn't do he wouldn't do business with him but he'll let him run the country (laughs) that was what i tweeted i said wait a minute and i like bergam and i'm hoping he'll do a lot better i'm disappointed but i said look so he won't let him wholesale the big green egg but he will put him in the oval office (laughs) uh, you you know the thing about this is chuck kind of set him up because before that he asked him if he'd ever lied in politics. And, you know, I think he said, no, absolutely not. He's never told a fib, never lied. And then he hits him with this. And you can hear Bergam saying, well, I just said I would never lie. So, so I better I not start the now. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing he's doing is he's um, apparently he's offered $20 gift cards for people who make a donation to his campaign. I didn't even know that was legal. Well, yeah, that's the problem with this RNC scam where they want yeah. Soviet economics, and they're all doing it. <laughs> they're all spending ten, twenty, thirty dollars to buy a donor. In terms right. of buy, I don't always mean gift cards because they, they need forty thousand to get into the debate on the twenty third of August. Just the marketing cost to grind two dollars out of somebody who's never seen you much on national TV is really expensive. But that's the that's the perverse market the RNC has created by trying to rig the debate for Trump and DeSantis. Uh, but anyway, I, let me just say on Bergen, I, I I was a bit of a Bergen booster when he got in because I thought, all right, booster? long shot. You are you are his main main supporter. No, that was Kemp. But but <laughs> no no look, and I like Scott too. There's some I I just want anybody who's not Trump. You know, if Mussolini showed up and he wasn't Trump, I'd think about it. <laughs> the thing about Bergam is he had a great announcement video, and he was running as the outside Washington, not part of the clown show, governor from the West, younger. It was a good video, kind of Reagan echoes. But then, and I thought, look, he's got that positioning. He's adjacent-ish to Iowa and farm state politicians tend to, you know, be 
do well in the caucus. They have the tools to talk about certain things. And he's, he's a billionaire. So he doesn't have to worry about donors telling him that Fox said he was at 1% in the new poll, at least to Iowa. He can buy a shot on his own terms with the communications money to put the message out. So I said, on paper, this guy could go somewhere. Then he got in the race and it was clown shoes all the way because he's never played, no offense, North Dakota, AAA or major league ball. He's used to dealing with the one reporter in the state house and all the kind of charming stuff about small states. So he gets on face to nation, which was really bad. They asked him something. I can't even remember a complicated foreign policy question. He started talking about growing up on the farm. And then most of his messaging is he's trying to be secretary of energy. So the, it is a tragic campaign to watch because I think on paper he could have broke through and been interesting. Now, he spent two million of television in Iowa and New Hampshire and growing. He is still an interesting guy. If he could get if you could understand he's playing major league ball now and this 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 single a stuff doesn't work and figure out where the persona message is and time is rapidly running out the potential was great but i'm disappointed because there's been no real effective campaign fargo is on fire right now after you <laughs> denigrated the state of north dakota and its politics so we've got to give senator heitkamp some rebuttal time here i think if you had gone downtown minneapolis which is really our nearest big city is kind of where everybody goes for the Minnesota Twins, don't laugh, goes to watch the Vikings. And you ask people on the street, who's the governor of North Dakota? They wouldn't know after eight years of him being governor. And so when you're judging these candidates, I mean, I think Kim Reynolds, a lot of people know who she is, if, you know, across the country, because she's been intriguing. She's been kind of a culture warrior. Burgum has ducked and dodged and weaved so many tough issues and never really planted his feet anywhere. And so when, you, you, when you're when you a Republican in a state like North Dakota, you don't take any hard knocks. You know, maybe maybe the really conservative legislature knocks you around a little. But, you know, you're beloved and, and the media is always good. And then you get on a national stage and it's like a deer in the headlights. And, you know, I like Doug, but and I hope he does well. I think he's got an important message that hopefully will move the Republicans back to a more traditional economic message, more policy oriented. But I I didn't see anything there that would, you know, if I were a Republican in New Hampshire watching that interview, I would say, yeah, yawn. I mean, yawn, yawn. Yeah, he's running for cabinet. Let me just interject. He, he has so much freedom. It's weird. He's been audacious in getting in. And he has the freedom to run the interest in campaign and make news and all that. Yet he's, as you say, during the headlights, totally fumbling it. It's very asymmetrical and it's tragic. And he, he needs well, it's, it's about risk, risk. He's risk adverse. And yeah, you cannot clearly. be a minority candidate like this where you're getting in, where nobody knows you and not take risks. And right, he's not exactly. taking any risks. He could beat Biden if he had the right shtick. But, you know, he's, he's well, nowhere he near probably it. will be in about 20 years. Uh, can, can, uh, then he'll be older than Biden. <laughs> can I uh, can I can I tell you something that I noticed in his interviews that I think is really sort of interesting? It, he never says I. He always says we. He yeah, says, the royal we. Another yes. problem. No, he means he and his wife. <laughs> Does he? No. Yeah, that's that's the we. He and Catherine. It sounds to me like a guy who 
isn't sure that he belongs here. So he wants to make himself bigger by saying we instead of I. The whole thing was strange. Listen, on this, uh, just one more thing on this Kim Reynolds thing. They're about to move an abor- a six-week abortion ban in Iowa, similar to what they did in Florida. You know, they are sort of cross-endorsing each other's abortion bills. And that's an interesting play in the Iowa caucuses with the, you know, large evangelical uh, vote there. So uh, now, you know, I've said this before, if DeSantis does blunder his way into this nomination, uh, all of these things he's doing to win over the right immediately flip on him and become big liabilities in a general election. But in the Iowa caucuses, you know, the two of them work in that same side of the street on the six-week ban may actually help him. It's a mixed bag. I mean, I think people are forgetting in this Iowa caucus there are 172,000 Democrats and Dem leading independents with nothing to do on caucus night. And it's very easy to show up and vote. I'm not sure it'll be the same, you know, uh, movement, mm-hmm. uh, Christian conservative numbers as usual. But we'll see. They are playing with fire because mm-hmm. if they, we have created a federal abortion issue by taking a perceived right away, the court doing that, and the Republican, a lot of them applauding it. Uh, it's just has created a very troublesome general election issue. And we'll see how that plays out. Culture wars. You know, if you're a Democrat running in a red state, the last thing you want to talk about is culture. You want to talk about economics. You want to talk about farm policy. You want to talk about infrastructure. And now the table has turned. Even in these very red states, this is not a winning issue for a lot of Republicans. And so you saw Bergham uh, in that interview. He got trapped into saying he would not sign any abortion restriction, federal abortion restriction. That's going to hurt him in the Iowa caucus with the evangelicals. I mean, I would exploit it if he ever caught some traction. So abortion, abortion is one of those issues that the politics has completely flipped, even in red states, particularly red states. Yeah. We wanted to talk about this ad, Murphy. Yeah, we, we why, should. Why don't you tee it up? Because it's an interesting approach to how you go after Trump. So the new ad is out from the Club for Growth, but I'm not sure it's so much for them. Uh, they're kind of transactional. I think they could be the conduit for other money. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's a, well, it's some, a super PAC. That- it's super PAC, exactly. So donor gives to donor, gives to donor, gets ad. And it's a permission structure ad. And, you know, we're, we're radio here. It's hard to see, but we'll put it up. Uh, we'll put up a link to it. But it's very interesting. My guess is the money behind it probably came from places that like Florida and South Carolina. But let's take a listen. It's a guy on his porch, a, a classic kind of working class, middle class white guy in his late 40s or 50. I'm not really a fan of what's going on right now. I mean, the Democrats are just unbelievable. It's a mess. It's a, it's a hot mess. I love Donald Trump. I love what he did. Once he got in, I thought it was a breath of fresh air. He was attacked in all the time, and it seemed like, you know, it just seemed nonstop. The drama, it affected my family. I mean, you know, with my own sister. I didn't get invited to her Thanksgiving after a while. He's got so many distractions. The constant fighting, something every day. And I'm not sure he can focus on moving the country forward. The election is really important because we're going in the wrong direction. I mean, we definitely need somebody that can freaking win. I think you'd probably lose that bet if you voted for Trump. You want somebody that's smart who actually knows how to build teams to solve issues, focus on the issues that really need to be fixed. When a backpack is responsible for the content of this ad. 
Yeah, the win it, win it backpack, which I think the Club for Growth has helped create. Heidi, Mike described it exactly the right way, which is you've got to meet voters where they are. They're not ready to expel Trump and they want permission to move away from Trump. And this is a permission structure spot. I think it was very, very clever. This is a very smart ad because the best ads are always the ones where you amplify what people are already thinking. And this is exactly what movable Republicans are already thinking. Like, can we can we win with this guy? And you know, you heard him say, I like what he did. He was a breath of fresh air, but it was a lot of drama, caused family problems. I mean, you know, and I remember the ad just listening to it once. And so that tells you that it is going to resonate with certain people. The question is, do those 30-second commercials, you know, this kind of advertising, does it still work in the way that it worked, you know, 15, 20 years ago? I don't know. But, you know, I think if I were going to run against Donald Trump as a Republican, that's an ad that I would spend a lot of money on. And that's going to be up in Iowa and other places soon. And it's going to escalate. The next argument they have to break out there is, I don't want to lose to Joe Biden, which should have been Bergam's answer, by the way. You know, vote yeah. for Trump becomes a vote for Biden. That's the tragedy why others of us are running. Anyway, so yeah, I thought good work, more coming. I have a feeling the funding will be good for that because that's an ad every candidate but Trump can agree on. And yeah. so I think, and there are other efforts that Cokes are going to do something like this too with multi-million. So again, this is the beginning of the beginning of the campaign. We'll see how it goes, but that is great messaging. Yeah. But Mike, I, I wonder once the pile on starts, if that, just as the indictments have solidified some of Trump's base, it, once, once the pile on and all this attack comes, is that going to harden the hardcore Trump base that still could win in a plurality kind of situation in Iowa. Right. Well, that, that is an argument you hear a lot, but it, in my view, under overestimates the so-called Trump hardcore base. You boil it off, you're not at 40%. Uh, you know, and I'd see a lot of private data on this. It, it gets down to the high 20s pretty quick. Um, so we're see. But I'd rather have Trump in the high 20s than the high 40s. Is it, is it the high 20s in Iowa or is it the high 20s nationally? Uh, it's worse in Iowa because I okay. was the uh, the national polls, in my view, don't mean anything till after the first caucus because Iowa and to a lesser but important extent, New Hampshire, are the only places where there's a complicated market where the dogs are starting to taste other dog food. You know, nobody <laughs> in the Michigan primary really knows what a Tim Scott or even very much a DeSantis, let alone a Burgum or a Hutchison or a Nikki Haley is. So, you know, we're see. I mean, I never forgot when I worked for Lamar Alexander in 95, uh, we, we came in and kind of surged into a close third in New Hampshire. And all of a sudden we were tied for first place in Illinois and we hadn't been there in a year. You know, the polls move quick when stuff starts happening. So we're see. We'll see. But a good ad. I'm hoping to see more of it. Never did get to Illinois, did you? We voted there 11 times. We just didn't ever have <laughs> yeah, to show okay. up. I just threw um, that you up set that you. one up. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, just back to my point. Uh, a little bit earlier, these are the new ingredients, the new information coming into the campaign we're seeing. This is so much better than the Christie attack. The Christie attack is helpful, but it's not going to do anything to help Christie. This is more generic to open people's eyes to a winning alternative yeah. to Trump, and we'll see if it works, but I was going to see it. I have a slightly different estimation of where Trump's floor is. I think it's a, a little bit higher than you. I think it's more like a third to 40 We'll see. We don't know. The great imponderable is we don't know what the 
accumulated weight of all of this legal stuff is and whether, you know, people continue to say this is just a beatdown like this guy did in this ad. And so I'm not going to move off of Trump because of it. Interestingly, a story just broke overnight. Trump's lawyers right before midnight got papers in and they're really trying to delay the trial as long as they can, I think, until after the election uh, on the theory that that's his get out of jail free card. Uh, and it may be that having these things hover over him is uh, is helpful to him in the primaries. If he gets convicted in one of them, we'll see. But uh, yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I just pitched the other dimension. People can like Trump and vote for somebody else simply because they think Trump can't beat Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not asking yeah. the party to execute Trump, just not lose to Biden. But, Mike, the equation you're taking out of this is Trump. I mean, Trump's going to be on the hustings. He's going to say, this is malarkey. You know, they're trying to, uh, you know, they're trying to stop our movement, our mega movement. And you got to help me move mega forward. And yeah. so if, if, if this is in a vacuum, I agree with you. But Trump is still the most persuasive person for Trump. Yeah. And he's pretty darn good at it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's Godfather Four, you know. But we're seeing, we're seeing. <laughs> you think he's jumped the shark? There's f- Trump fatigue. They don't have to hate him. They but they believe he's going to lose to Biden, and and the Biden is so there's so much energy to beat Biden in the party. Can I? I just want to say one other thing about that, and that is that there are purists who don't care if they lose to Biden. Mm-hmm. They're just going to advance mm-hmm. an agenda. Right. No, there are. And I just th- don't that, think they're enough to yeah. win the nomination. But that's the question. That's the question. Listen, you said you use the word Heidi Malarkey, yeah. which uh, yeah. assigned it to Trump. It's actually a Biden <laughs> word. That's one of his favorite words. Well, yeah, we will see. There's going to be a lot of malarkey in the campaign and we're going to get to Biden next. One quick and we'll do more of this in a later episode. But the second quarter through the end of June, Federal Election Commission reports are starting to trickle out, which are the important X-ray. Heidi, you remember this stuff well when you were a senator and raising money. It shows a lot of numbers and for your super PAC, for your campaign, including cash on hand. And I, I've been a real bear on Nikki Haley, but she went from $4 million at the end of Q1. We don't have the other reports yet. Up to the high sevens, almost $8 million. Now, we know the campaign manager always stuffs a couple hundred grand worth of bills in a drawer to puff that number up. But uh, it's not a great number, but it keeps her in the race. I thought it could have been a disastrous number, and they found a few million. So she doesn't have money to do a lot right now. But if she has money to do later after a good debate, eh, could be okay for her. But we're, we'll be back with a lot more of that. Here's a se- segue alert. Uh, we need a segue uh kind of signal for a segue alert uh, fox here you got one <laughs> all right okay one person who hasn't uh, disclosed how much he raised in the last quarter is the president of the united states and it leads mm. me to this question which generally is a sign that it wasn't a great number uh you know desantis got his number out right away which was 20 million which was pretty impressive and more for his super PAC. but uh, but uh, not, we haven't heard from uh, Biden. And um, I, my question for you, Heidi, is uh, there is no campaign headquarters. There's hardly any staff. Uh, they didn't announce their money. Uh, like, what's going on? Well, I, I, mean, I think I told you that I was uh, in a room with, uh, with the former Speaker of the House, who basically said, you don't think Biden's running. He said, that, where's the indication he's serious about this? And now you saw over the week 
Politico did a story basically saying the same thing. Like, where's the campaign? Are you serious about this or not serious about it? And the Rose Guard strategy will not work. He cannot stay in Washington and not run a campaign. I mean, and, and, and my argument is you aren't seeing a lot of it. Maybe they're saving up some energy. Maybe they see the Republicans, uh, the Republican on Republican kind of slugfest and they're like, let that play out. Don't get in the way. I don't know. But I think, I think that there are a lot of people legitimately questioning the, uh, the kind of um, uh, commitment that um, Biden has to running again in 2024. I think their answer would be they're trying to save money, that this isn't the time to be spending. Yeah, but you should always be raising money. Well, yeah, and it's hard with a staff of 20 and uh, it's not only raising money, but there are a lot of political uh, hands to be touched around the country. And you kind of need a team and an operation to do that. So it's surprising to me that they're not doing it. I don't know that it's a sign that he's not running. But it is a sign that if he is running, he's going to have a lot of catching up to do to have to raise the two billion dollars he's probably going to need to make this thing work. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't be working real hard. The wrong tracks at 70 percent. Trump's doing 10 points better than Biden, even with all Trump's problems on managing the economy in national polls. Ah, You know, there. I think five o'clock, turn on the Rockford rerun. Get Take it easy, Joe. <laughs> um, you know, I don't get it either. And it is a weird signal. And, and Heidi's right. The polls see that because they've lived the life of grinding out the fundraising around the clock and all the difficult things and thinking maybe he's not running because he's not acting like it in his schedule and particular, you know, staff mechanical stuff. You know, on the other hand, they might have some master theory that this is all a clever Rama-like trick to draw the Republicans across the desert. But well, it's Trump, I'd be very worried if I were them because I think they totally underestimate the problem they've got, the weakness Biden has politically, and they totally are banking on Trump to win the nomination. Right. I won't go back into right. that, but they better have a plan B. They aren't just banking on Trump winning the election. They're banking on Trump taking the MAGA movement and running his own campaign. That mm-hmm. that even if he doesn't get the nomination, that he's still going to be a very destructive force. And so, it, you know, and, and in politics, the last thing you should count on is the heirs of your opponents. I totally agree. It's like, hey. Those are called losing campaigns. Whenever you rely on somebody else to elect you, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, no, that, that leads to the, the, the post-election book, What the F Happened. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. You know, uh, you mentioned the economy, you, you know, the poll, you're polling, you, I think you were being generous. There are polls that have a, a larger advantage for Trump on the economy. But the number, you know, the economy itself is actually when you think about where we were when he became president, where we are now and 13 million jobs created and all of that, uh, you know, uh, you'd think he'd get and all the infrastructure stuff and and they're trying to roll that out now. And here's uh, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey commenting on that. Do you believe that Donald Trump presents the best contrast for Joe Biden's reelection um, or are there other candidates that you think would be easier for Joe Biden to face? I don't know that I, I think this, Chuck, I, I believe a strong economy 
in a powerful foreign policy hand, and the president has exhibited both. I think that's a winning hand no matter who they're up against. I'm not Mm -hmm. suggesting it's a runaway election like it was in 1984. But if you've got those two engines on your side, that to me is a winning hand no matter who you're up against. Yeah, I mean, the the problem with that is if people are not feeling it. Right, exactly. They don't believe it. So it doesn't matter if they don't. It's it's not how it's not really an objective measure of the economy. Now, the consumer confidence is rising. Inflation is coming down. Uh, Economists are now less. less convinced that there's going to be a recession. Uh, we'll see. But Heidi, right now, he's not getting a hell of a lot of credit. No. And and the misery index actually would indicate that things are getting better for people, but it's going to take a while for people to feel it. And the bottom line is first impressions matter. And when you come in and you know you have huge inflation numbers, people kind of remember that, even though they're not paying $10 a dozen for eggs and it's down to you know the low $3 range, they don't, I mean, they remember that $10 and they remember the $5 gas or the $6 right. gas. And so that first impression needs to be overcome, but you can't do it from the White House, right? You can't, no. you can't, you, you, you got to get out there and you got to tell your story. And, you know, the, 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 the reality for so many of these candidates and, and you think about back to the midterms, we had lousy economic numbers. And so I'll make this argument, but the Dobbs decision Mm-hmm. turn the midterms around. And so these culture issues are going to continue to play a huge role. And you just can't look the way, you know, in the old days, it's the economy, stupid. I, I, you know, the midterms would suggest it's not just the economy. It's still nothing. When when people are riled, nothing's bigger than the economy. I agree. We've created a whole new culture set, which is fun in Republican primaries, not so fun in the suburbs in a general election. And as far as the numbers, I mean, I remind me of 92 in the late great president George H. W. Bush, the, the economists would always come in and say the numbers are great; it's all turning around, and you know nobody believed it. In politics, you never get credit; you take it, and when necessary, you steal it, uh, and it takes active motion. The misery index at that time was That's not as good unemployment as it is and provided. inflation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, they, they're going to have the look. The New York Times is going to have great editorials of statistics. Nine out of ten economists will think it's wonderful, but if they here's Biden's real problem. It's not just economic frustration. And I think he ought to be doing the, you know, the it, it, we've only just begun stuff. To quote the great ad man, Martin Purris, who was emailing some of this, invented the uh, the ultimate driving machine, Titus ship and the shipping. One of the best copywriters in the history of advertising was pitching some ideas about this for Biden. They ought to listen to him. It It is the perception that because Joe's so old, he can't be on top of it, the comeback. and everything. Mm-hmm. The two merge together. And that is the problem because the old thing is indelible ink. They've got to fix that. If the uh, Biden brain trust were here, if Anita Dunn were here or someone else uh, from, you know, the, the, the Politburo that's running the campaign from the White House, if they were here, what they would say is, you smarty pants, jamokes, were all <laughs> writing us off four years ago. You all said we didn't know what we were doing. And guess what? Our guy, they, every time he walks in the room, they play hail to the chief now, okay? So we know, uh, we know, we have a plan and we're confident in that plan. Um, I'm sure that's what they would say. No, and no, they you're totally right. To have a chip and on they'd their say shoulder. with conviction. Yeah. I would say, okay, but I've heard that from every one hit wonder in the history of songwriting, too. 
You know, yeah. you guys won by an inch against a madman in a in a glow in the dark orange freak show haircut with the worst <laughs> record of criminality in the history of the American presidency. Made Nixon look like Mother Goose, and you inched it out by forty thousand votes. So before you start pitting medals on each other, show me a campaign because I'll take seventy percent. I got thrown out of the White House in ninety one as a young pain in the ass consultant in the in the Bush thing because they called everybody in. And they were bragging about their numbers after the war. And I said, yeah, but the wrong track 65 isn't going to be about the economy. And all of a sudden, my chair started moving to the door by itself. And that, that for you know, I was out. And the hubris of a White House staff, because everybody almost held the chief all the time, not to be underestimated. So uh, they, could do, they could use more fear, less cockiness. That would be Abs- what I'd say. Absolutely. And they'd say, shut up, Republican. And that would be the end of the meeting. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they think about this. So, so, uh, uh, Clyburn comes in and saves the campaign, right? Right. So we all have to acknowledge that this was the great South Carolina turnaround because he understood rightfully that a moderate candidate, someone that looked like Trump had, or that at least was in that same generation had the best opportunity to beat Trump that you couldn't beat him with Bernie. You couldn't beat him with Elizabeth. So he, he, he makes this decision. He, he's old friends and then they get lucky in the midterm. And they think they won the midterms as opposed to the Republicans lost the midterms. And so, you know, that the last thing you need is hubris in campaigns. You need humility and you need strategy. And what I would say is, show me your strategy. Don't tell me about how you're, you're mm-hmm. you know, behind the curtain, you're brilliant. It, I've got to see it on the in the field. I've got to see it in the ground and on the ground. And and I don't, I, you know, I think we should be worried. Of course, uh, the. the as we discussed earlier, their strategy is similar to 22 to allow the Republicans to destroy uh, themselves. And as, as you guys pointed out, that's a, it's always risky to rely on your opponent to do the heavy lifting uh, for Well, you. I mean, think about this. What, what football coach says, okay, if they fumble five times on the field, we can win this. So get right, out there, boys. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think I, with the Bears I, yeah, have had was, a couple of coaches like that, but I'm uh but anyway. That was my plan to win the heavyweight belt from Tyson. I had a very yeah. clever strategy. I was gonna stand there and he was gonna break his hand on my face. And I, <laughs> I was wondering what happened to your left ear, Murphy. Now I well, know. So. I gave him a hell of a fight. I could have been the next <laughs> Tex Cobb. So we gotta take advantage of that because a bunch of your very good friends in the United States Senate have tough races uh, yep. in 2024. John Tester in Montana, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, Manchin, uh, if he does run in uh, in uh, West Virginia. It looks like Dave McCormick could run in Pennsylvania against Bob Casey. The, the Republican Party has done a much better job, and they seem determined not to let a repeat of, tw- of 20 and 22 happen. They're recruiting good candidates. Uh, how concerned are you about that? Well, I mean, I think it, these races have been nationalized in a way that they were not when Kent Conrad and Byron Dorgan represented North Dakota, right? So you could you could run as Two a Democrat, yeah. you yeah. know, and outperform um, your Democratic uh, uh, presidential candidate by twenty points and still win. So the first concern that they should have is so Biden numbers have to get up, and Biden has to do better in states like Montana for that to happen. But but you also have to look at the personalities and Sherrod Brown, I mean, no one's gonna out working class any, you know, someone like Sherrod Brown. 
you know, John Tester, no one's going out Montana, John Tester. They're trying to run kind of an import, only been there 10 years, you know, and go back to the, to our discussion about Doug Burgum. You know, people haven't been in the race. Herschel Walker, you know, yes, it's nice to run somebody who hasn't had the taint of politics, but they also haven't had the experience of yeah. politicians. And so you got to be a little careful um, kind of saying, oh, look, on paper, they look good. On paper, Doug looks good. How is he going to perform? And I would tell you, you know, Bob Casey has a legacy in in Pennsylvania. Sure. He has a lot of loyalty. I, I think that the states that that you got to be concerned about are, you know, Montana and Ohio, um, you know, and, and that's against a backdrop. Well, where certainly West I don't Virginia. Really see West Virginia. Yeah. But I don't I don't know if Joe's going to run. But but, you know, you you run that against a backdrop of where could you possibly pick up a seat? And that gets really tough. That map gets really tough. And the R's know it. I mean, this is, in in the view of the party, the chance. Heidi, let me ask you a question, because if we had a bunch of Republican strategists here, this, this is something, and you're well qualified to answer it. And maybe we're wrong, but on our side, there's a lot of head scratching about why don't the national Dem, kind of the intellectual vanguard of the party and a lot of the the power centers in the Washington Democratic Party understand you got to have a two front war, how critical red state Democrats are, yet they don't <laughs> get a lot of support and cover. You know, it's become a very progressive inside world in the Democratic yeah. Party, particularly culturally. You guys must feel like the lost garrison out there in these tough yeah, states. Yeah, but the good news is that then great, great Democrats like Heidi Heitkamp are free to be here with us instead <laughs> well, of stuck well, in the United States Senate. You know, yeah, yeah, stuck with the free haircuts and the windbag <laughs> uh, to the right, to the left. Wasn't it Casey Stengel who said, I coach so good and they play so bad? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I manage so good. How come they play so bad? Yeah. yeah, but you remember, and, and you were in this era and beyond when the Dems were pretty good at exploiting red state opportunities with above-average candidates who could talk Republican. Hell, they nominated one of Bill Clinton. So what happened? Because they gave up one of their best franchises. They're never going to be number one, but they were in the hunt in places. Now it's almost abandoned. I mean, think about this, Mike. When I started out in politics in 1984, I ran my first statewide race. I literally, she was 10 years is, old. Yeah, 10 years old. Literally, my base were seniors and working class people. And we hope we pick up enough, you know, kind of college educated women to win a race. You know, that's completely flipped because mm -hmm. we haven't paid attention to rural America. We haven't paid attention to, you know, responding to concerns people had about about the the challenges of a transitioning global economy. You know, we just kind of said, where is it easy to win? And let's go invest there because that'll get us a majority as opposed to how do we become a national party? And, and you know, I have no explanation for this other than the work that we've been doing at one country to kind of raise our hand and say, you can't win unless you do better in our places. Right. Because if you do better in rural North Dakota, guess what? That message is going to resonate in rural Pennsylvania. And so don't leave us behind. Yeah, no, there's a huge challenge for the Democratic Party. I, I think, you know, I've said it for a long time. I just think the Democratic Party has become too much of a cosmopolitan, you know, college educated sort of look down your nose party. And it, uh, it, you basically signals have been sent to, uh, small town and rural voters that we're not really that interested in you. 
And uh, I think the party's paying a big price for it. And it's not just going to be in these Senate races, but also the presidential races, because some of these swing states will turn on what happens in those communities. And, uh, you know, Biden eked it out last time. But uh, this is this is a this is something that the the, uh, Democratic Party needs to confront. People forget, thanks to the Electoral College, the uh, one thing Hamilton invented that's not in the musical the the little states punch above their weight in the electoral congress and a, most of not all but many of the little states or little to mid little are more rural and the republicans win a lot of stuff there for free and when the democrats go nuts on identity politics it only helps and it just it just sucks off the oxygen to the more moderate red state friendly yeah. uh, dems there's no one on the playing field like I mean, yeah. you, you say they win it for, you know, because we don't we don't feel the team. Right. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> my point. I <laughs> I have a friend who ran in a pretty tough our district, but he, he gave the Republican Trumpy incumbent the fight of a lifetime and went out and raised a million bucks. But DCCC wouldn't return a phone call. The guy mm-hmm. was in Kansas. And, you know, they're just like, well, sorry, we're we're having the big AOC event tonight. No room for you there, you know, Hillbilly. Go back and good luck in Kansas. You know, and he was totally alone. There's been a, Steve Daines has done a pretty good job for Republicans on this recruitment uh, yes. issue. Tim Sheehy is the person who Heidi is referring to, a former Navy SEAL who's running against Tester in Montana. Tester's a great candidate, so... But that's going to be a, a tough. Certainly, it's better than running against a right wing nut, which I don't think. In spite of Steve Dane's nomination, I don't think that they can beat Rosendale. I mean, yeah. Well, that's the question: like Can they yeah. beat the crazies with the? I mean, the establishment Republicans are going all in in all these states because they don't want the same thing that happened in twenty two. The question is: Can they win those primaries? And that's that. That, that will is it. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about Ohio. It looks like. There's going to be a pro-choice initiative similar to the one that was on the ballot in Michigan in 2022 on the ballot in Ohio in 24. They submitted twice the number of signatures they need. Um, How will that, Heidi, affect, do you think, the Senate race there? I I think the presidential politics are tough in a state like Ohio these days. But, you know, Sherrod Brown being Sherrod Brown, this could have an impact, couldn't, couldn't it? I, absolutely. And, and it goes back to motivation. So yeah, people can be upset about the Dobbs decision, but say, what difference does it make who I vote for Senate? But all of a sudden now it puts it on the ballot, which means it puts it in the public forum. And those candidates are going to have to respond. Are you going to vote for that or aren't you going to vote for that? And once they become identified at one side or the other in a in a very public way, in a very public issue, that's going to be problematic for the Republicans because yeah. every right to life voter who cares about this issue has been voting for decades on this issue. The pro-choice side has not seen this as a voting issue. It is now a voting issue. And so it's all negative for the right to life side and all positive for the pro-choice. Yeah. You know, the nightmare when you're a candidate at every level, but we're focused on the Senate races, when there's something like this on the ballot, you have to talk about it almost every day. You can't do the normal thing, which is at the pro-life convention. Yeah, we're going to do a lot. We'll see what can get out of the house, but I'm with you. And then, you know, you're off the hook for nine months. This thing, every single day, you're doing your eight-point plan for, you know, the, the turn Toledo into the new Paris and boom, 
uh, there's the question again. Now, I think if Matt Dolan wins the primary, you know, uh, he's got the political skills. Yeah. You know, it's going to come down to how good the Senate candidates are wiggling out of being bolted down as the defining issue of their campaign. And Dolan's very good, very moderate temperament. He ran. He ran last time and finished third. Yeah, yeah, and he, you know, he he is the kind of guy is in the Voinovich and. Mike DeWine mold. But anyway, he's in a stronger position in this in this Senate race. So I think candidate will be part of it. And again, it's the old 50-foot wall of water. You know, if it's really bad for Biden, even your very impressive 25-foot break wall ain't going to hold. Uh, I remember I was in Michigan in Spence's reelect when the Bush campaign- Spence Abraham, yeah. yeah Spence, when the Bush campaign pulled the plug on Michigan five weeks out. And we were running ahead of Bush. We were ahead of Debbie uh, Stabenow, who's now retiring, but not by a lot. And the minute the Bush campaign pulled out the money and the support, all of a sudden that water, you know, we, we could handle 10 feet of water and we had we had 16 coming uh, and it got us in the end. So the presidential thing is still the big game. So, Mike, this to your point, when I ran in 2012 and won, I could Obama could lose by 22 points and I could still win being on the ticket with him. When I ran for re-election, it was only a four-point swing. Yeah. So yeah. I and the headwinds in these states is getting narrower and narrower. So the ability of candidates to overcome a negative presidential outcome is is greatly diminished in this right. new world. You don't have your own brand as much because of cable TV. Everything's nationalized, and you're all you're all in the big game show. In the old days, you you know governors can still do this to some extent, but you could have a little distance. You could have your uh, North Dakota kind of Democrat senator, and now it's pick a team and grab an axe, and it just doesn't <laughs> doesn't give you that room. Yeah, which is bad bad for the country, by the way. It's terrible for very the bad, very bad. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Okay, learned listeners, if you have a question for the hacks, all you got to do is use that amazing internet machine to send it to us. Our email address is hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to us. It's very helpful to recruit new listeners to our vast and growing army. And finally, a little personal plug here. I've been toying around with Substack, so you can find me on Substack. I just posted my first essay called Happiness and high voltage. I write about weird stuff there, including, get this, liberal Democrats, I'm now driving an electric car. This son of Detroit, who can still tell you who Linda Vaughn was from the 70s uh, and was obsessed with horsepower, I now love my electric car. And what I wrote is not about cars so much, but about the happiness I found in the world of electric car people. It's it's reminiscent of the Apollo program. Now we have this cool book club, hacksontap.com slash book club. See, it took us an hour to come up with that one. Heidi, give our listeners a good book you think they should read. I think they should read Being Mortal. Even though it's a little bit old, it still outlines why we have such challenges paying for health care. It is brilliantly written. It is engaging. It's a quick read. Read it and you will understand better what this country needs to bend the curve on healthcare costs. I, I second that. It's also instructive for 
families. People who are, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's really a, it's How really to pr- a prepare for book. end of life. That, right. that it, for, here's a spoiler. It basically says, look, if we're going to curb healthcare costs, we need to be realistic about. Yes, someday we're going to die. Accept that fact and plan for it. I will That's read that. That's pretty depressing. That, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I hey, you guys finish up. I got to go talk to my estate lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I hate those things because at the end, I think I can't have Chicago pizza ever again. Hacks on Tap is also now on Threads. Next week, we're going to be oh. on Needle, too. We're expanding. So we're on Threads, the new Twitter thing that Zuckerberg... I'm holding back on Threads because I want to see who wins the cage fight. Uh, but uh, I'll probably get on it soon. Our well, address I'm there like is... the Republican candidates uh, talking about Trump. I'm on both. So uh, there, there I'm, I'm straddling the line here. So Heidi, Owen asks, uh, Biden's age seems uh, to be one of the most, if not the most glaring issues for his campaign. Since he's not going to get any younger over the next 16 months, that's Owen's prediction. Shouldn't his campaign try to own his age and try to make it into an asset? How would you go about doing that? You got to go with the assets you have. And, you know, the thing is, it's not about whether it's an asset, is whether you can diminish the liability factor. And you do that by, number one, doing everything that you can to talk about your great record, talk about how you've led this country, how how now we have a higher standing internationally. I mean, I could give the Biden pitch, but, you know, you want to say, as an old guy, you don't do that. I mean, you basically make try and make age a non-issue, not a positive issue. Yeah, th- that is such good advice. I want to take that answer and put it on a 78 and send it to the White House immediately. <laughs> Telex, nice. Which is how they play their records there. <laughs> right, right. So Biden can hear it himself. <laughs> I can't resist. The age jokes are so easy. You know, he's so old. Biden, uh, is, Here's an old vaudeville joke. Biden is so old, he is the man who discovered the Beatles, not the band, the insect. You know, uh, I'm not sure. Let me just, uh, let, me, uh, let me be a slight dissenter here. I, I think in the main, Heidi's answer is right, but because Owen is right, that this is not something that you can ignore. I do think that, I really do think that Biden's experience is an asset and he's shown it and we've seen it in, you know, in Ukraine, we've seen it in his ability to produce the legislation that he has. He he knows when to be quiet. He knows when to interject himself. He knows how the process works. And there's value uh, to that. But yeah, let me just chime in seriously. He ought to spotlight his young geniuses too. We ought to be seeing seeing Ramundo and Buttigieg and the whole oh, team. She's back. The brain. She's yes, back, Gina yeah. Ramundo. The great Gina Ramundo ought to be present. Yes. But the point is, if he's old experience, who's the wise old lion, give him some young lions around him. Make it a Biden team. Not just one guy. And uh, uh, Axe and I have a fan favorite, Mitch Landrew. Yeah, no, Landrew's incredible. Yeah. Yep. Murphy, I remember Mike talking about the demographic swing-a-meter on Cook Political Report website during the 2020 election as an indicator that Democrats might have a better baseline electorate than in 2016. Wouldn't a 2024, 28, and 32, et cetera, demographic swing-a-meter have a similar trajectory of a broadly diversifying electorate? How is Republican rightward messaging aimed at keeping up with this? Yeah, great, great point. The Democrats have, in a presidential high turnout election, not so true in the off year, a demographic tailwind. Now, the Republicans, we have a black belt and grumpy old white guys. Um, who tend to vote in a lot of elections. The more fickle, younger voters and voters of color tend to vote overwhelmingly 
Democratic, with one big exception I'm going to talk about. So presidential elections help the Dems, and the fact the country is becoming less the white vote used to be in the 80s and is steadily shrinking that the Republicans are so bad at competing with their votes. The only aberration to that is we've been doing better with Latino voters as of late. A lot of it on these cultural issues that the Democrats tend to be kind of uncomfortable with. I remember in particular the solution to Dade County for Biden was to keep sending Kamala Harris there. And there are tensions there. And she was the wrong messenger uh, to that community. Now, the countervailing thing that may may be fixable, should be fixable, but younger voters are showing remarkable lack of love for Joe Biden now, even within his coalition. Now, I think eventually they will come home, particularly if it's Trump, if it's somebody else, maybe not so much, but they have a, a particular Biden problem with voters they ought to get pretty easily. My guess is they can get a lot of them back. But yeah, I, the tailwinds of demography are not great in the long term in a presidential election for the GOP. And that's something I've been barking about for 15, 20 years that we have to have to address. Future America does not look like 1984 America. Yeah. Why talk a little bit about the youth vote? Because here is where a specific issue, student loans. You think about this and you say, oh, you know, most of the people hated his student loan program. But that voting demographic saw an opportunity. They saw PPP loans being forgiven. They saw all of this money going to farmers. You know, they see all this federal spending and then wonder why they're left behind. The Biden administration gives them, you know, uh, uh, you know, the $10,000 or $20,000 loan forgiveness. And then the Republicans cheer when it's taken away. And so there are so whether it's choice, whether it's student loans, whether it's income inequality, whether it's climate. You know, you can't separate in the youth vote the uh, the issue component of what's going to interest them. And they may not be enthusiastic, but they're damn well not enthusiastic about the Republican Party. Most pro-choice demographic in America, young dudes. Yeah. All right, Axe. This is from Kristen, the questioner who writes in with a fastball here. I'm wondering if Biden's favorability in right track, wrong track numbers, and kudos, Kristen, that is, I can tell this is an informed question. So anyway, she's wondering if those numbers, right track, wrong track, and Biden favorable, are a little misleading. There's a lot of Democrats who hate Biden and think he's doing an absolute bleep job, but will also vote for him with no problem, kind of a hold the nose vote. It reminds me of the Obamacare situation where a large portion of the unfavorables came from people who wanted a public option or single payer, in other words, from the left. What do you say, King of Obamacare? Explain that one. Well, I mean, look, I think that uh, as we were just discussing, I think there's something to that if there's a binary choice. And I think that's the real question. If Cornell West, for example, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, Murphy, when you were out with uh, Carville, if Cornell West is on the uh, Green Party line, you know, my fear is that some number of these young people are going to gravitate there. If uh, if our friends over at uh, the No Labels operation actually field a candidate, you know, say uh, Heidi's friend Joe Manchin, uh, it is very likely that most uh, that that the 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 vote that the, he's going to get is is much more like uh, Biden's vote than uh, than Trump's vote. Biden clobbered Trump among voters who had negative opinions of both candidates in two thousand and twenty. Yeah. If they have another alternative, uh, that's going to reduce that advantage, and it could be 
determinative. So I keep harping on this, and I'm going to keep harping on this. I think this is going to be a real wild card in the election. I, I want to tell a story, if I can, about a kid that I met at Brown University from New York who wanted to vote for the Green Party. But he said, I cannot vote for the Green Party if I think it's going to elect Donald Trump. And so they, these, are, these are some sophisticated voters. They, they won't necessarily choose the third party if they think they're handing it over. But if they think it's a free space, they may in fact go to the third party. It doesn't take too many when you're winning states by 20,000 votes or 11,000 votes. We all remember 2000 when Ralph Nader got 80,000 votes in Florida and and Al Gore lost uh, by 5,000. So this can be really, I mean, people need to pay attention to this. Totally. Well, I mean, Ross Perot. Yeah. I mean, Bill yeah. Clinton wouldn't have been president without Ross Perot. Yeah. No labels. It really is no labels, just Trump. Uh, but cue the scary thunderclap. <laughs> because what happens if it's not Trump? You know, then a lot of that glue the Biden world is counting on goes away. Well, we will be here to report every bit of it and give our wise, even if uninformed, <laughs> opinions on it. And uh, Heidi Heitkamp, uh, I love uh, seeing you on, in our other side, Jam, uh, over at the Institute of Politics. But it's great to have you come back often. And uh, we, we need that Fargo wisdom. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. That's right. Right. Coffee and rolls. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Heidi. Appreciate it. <laughs> Take care, All right, you, guys. you guys. All right. See you.